0: Listening to First Church Charlotte. And I am preaching for a little while from a fun subject. You guys know how I like to try to create a title that'll make you think to yourself, oh my word, finally there is something that he's not going to be able to make sense of. So my attempt today is this the King of Cool and the King of Kings. The king of cool and the king of kings. And you're like, I don't know where he's going with that. That's all right. I don't either. But wherever we go, we will be there together. Um, So uh, my goal today is to challenge and awaken within you a desire uh, to live a more spiritual life. Uh, Oftentimes... As a minister, I'll find myself preaching, preaching to perhaps saved people um, and perhaps people who are needing to take a step of spiritual growth in a ministry area. But as a church, we don't ever want to lose the, the fundamental invitation to people to turn toward a spiritual life. And I, am, I want to challenge you to take a, a road less traveled and to live a spiritual life, and so uh, work with me here for a few moments, and we'll try to get somewhere together. Um, I confess something that some of you don't know about me, and that is I love poetry. Now, I I, I don't have myself to blame for this; I have my father to blame for this. Uh, he is an English major, so that tells you everything you need to know there. But I oftentimes will find myself reading poetry uh, pretty, pretty regularly, uh, multiple times a week, um, just as a way to uh, reflect, a way to think. And this week I came across a poem uh, that I didn't know I was going to use it in my message. I usually don't share poetry I've read that week. Uh, but it's by the poet W.S. Uh, Merwin, W.S. Merwin. And it's a very short poem. It's entitled Separation, and it's just three simple lines. And so I'm going to give you the lines uh, really quickly. Your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Now, there's a couple of images happening here, but the point that the poet is trying to make to his beloved Um, is whether you are there or not there, I find that you are stitched through my life. In other words, if you're here, uh, you're marked in your presence. If you're not here, you are marked in your absence. And I believe that this is very, very truthfully said about the presence of God in our lives. We can choose to live quite spiritual lives. We can choose to live lives of faith and we can pursue the presence of God. How many of you want to pursue the presence of God in your life? When you do that, he responds to your pursuit of him. If you make time in your life to pray, if you make time in your life to reflect, even if you don't consider yourself a prayer person or a prayer warrior by uh, the terms that you have heard other people express or the way they've described it, if you simply make quiet time in your day to consider eternal things, you will find that the presence of God responds to the effort that you have made. We like to say uh, he is as close as the mention of his name. And we we say it as church people, but I want to say that before it was said by church people, it was felt by sinners who mentioned the name of Jesus in the middle of all of their distraction, in the middle of their drama. God does his best work often in places where you're surprised to feel him. You come to church, you expect to feel God in church. But I I want you to know that the person who is not right with God, and they may have spent the last few days kind of in that, you know, classic life of excess and they're doing sinful things and making sinful choices but I want you to know this God will meet them right there and touch them with his presence right there he literally is as close as the mention of his name and if you will make the smallest effort I promise you you will find that the Lord has been standing at the door of your heart knocking (laughs) waiting for you to make just the littlest the smallest effort toward Him. God, if you allow space for Him, will mark your life with His presence. But if you do not allow space for Him, you're still marked of God. It's just now you are marked with His absence. But the need, the fundamental Need of God is threaded through your creation and there is no escaping the manner of your creation. You were made to perceive the eternal. And no matter what this life gives you, you will not lose that ability to perceive the eternal. And so I want to make an appeal to everyone here today. Let's start first with the person who is beginning to turn their heart back toward the things of God. Uh, They are beginning to consider anew and afresh how they perhaps should have a relationship with God. And they're not sure yet exactly how that's going to look, but they're feeling the dream drawing power of God no man can come to God unless the spirit of the Lord draw him or her I want you to see you might be at that first you don't know what it's going to look like you've known other church people and you don't think you're going to look exactly the way their life of faith looked Uh, you've known maybe some relatives who uh, they were closer to God than you are and you knew that and you, you don't know what it looks like for you I want you to know that's okay if you just will begin inclining your heart toward the things of God you will find that He meets you. To those of you who are uh, you believers and you are involved in a faith journey, so to speak. You are pursuing something intangible in your life that is the kingdom of God. Uh, perhaps you're even a part of a local church. Perhaps you're a part of this local church. And I, I, I don't want you to feel as though this is just for the person who is making the first decision. Because the truth is, every day, we all of us decide just how spiritual we are going to be. We decide what we're going to major upon. We decide what is going to constrain us and what is going to invigorate us. We decide on a daily basis the nature of faith we are going to live and choose. I want you to know even if you've been walking with God your breakthrough of spiritual effectiveness may begin with a decision where you say I'm going to be more spiritually intentional than I have been. I'm not just going to bumble from work day to work day, from weekend to weekend, I am going to turn my eyes toward heaven and say, Lord Jesus, help me to step up to the next level of spiritual empowerment and anointing. Can I have a big amen in this house? When the church begins calling on the Lord, things begin to happen. When the church becomes intercessors, when we get hungry, let me remind you that if the church is not hungry, you can hardly blame the backsliders of the city for not being hungry. Hunger starts with the people who desire and hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hallelujah. So, uh, let me tell you about the time when the King of Cool met the King of Kings. Now, a lot of you are thinking, who in the world is the King of Cool? I want to assure you it's not me. I am not, I'm far, far from the King of Cool. And I want you to know that uh, depending on how well-versed you are in Americana uh, and the little minutiae and trivia of America, um, if you are of a certain age, you know who the King of Cool was. Now, it's not for the millennials and young Y'all have no idea who the king of cool was. This is for the boomers and above. The king of cool was originally Steve McQueen. He was the king of cool. He was given the title, the king of cool, by his generation. He was celebrated as the coolest of the cool, the baddest of the bad, the chillest of the chill, and the dopest of the dope. Mm. Now, let me just speak to our young people right up here who are shaking their head at my attempts to be cool. She's just humiliating. Oh, stop it, pastor. You're just embarrassing me. Uh, I, I want to tell all the young people, there was a day when your parents were cool. I know that day has passed. <laughs> I know there was a day they were so stinking cool, no one knew what to do with them. But see, then something happened. It's called Kids. And once the child came into the life, the cool factor went on a ski slope. And it went straight toward the bottom. And now, if you have kids, you know just how uncool you are. But in American urban legend, the king of cool was Steve McQueen. Let me tell you about Steve McQueen. He was the superstar of superstars in his day. He was famous for classic films like Bullet and The Great Escape and others. Uh, If you are younger than the age of 40, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, Interestingly, though, he had a very abusive childhood. Uh, He, his... He suffered under various stepfathers who physically beat him. I don't mean like spanked him for his own good. I mean, beat him with their fists. Um, he had stepfathers who would lock him in a cupboard and leave him locked in that cupboard, lock him uh, in closets and in, in attics and. Uh, As a result, this put a tremendous anger and rage in him, and he had no belief whatsoever in God, no belief in anything uh, of that like. And he, after this painful, painful, abusive childhood, came into his early adulthood and discovered that he uh, had something that the movies wanted. Uh, he was super good-looking guy. He, More than that, his the thing about being a movie star is you have to have this whole package effect. It can't just be your looks that are good. Your gestures have to be good. The way you speak has to be good. You have to be the king of cool to make it there, and he didn't just make it it, he went to the top. Uh, He had fame. He had fortune. Everybody wanted to be his friend. Everybody wanted to hang out with him. He went from being weak and powerless and abused to being uh, uh, powerful and rich, desirable and famous. And after this transformation, which surely must have felt quite surreal in his life, um, he spent most of his life with no patience for religion, no patience for faith. Uh, in his later years, however, he, he met a, a man um, who was a an instructor pilot. He taught people how to fly, and uh, Steve McQueen was going to get his pilot's license, and so this man became his instructor uh, in uh, piloting an airplane, and this man was the the... the right kind of Christian uh, to meet. What I mean by that is there's some Christians that after you meet them, it is increasingly unlikely that you will ever become a believer. There are some Christians that when you meet them, you leave them and you say, I will never, though it hair lips the devil and freezes over hell, I will never go to church. Uh, This guy wasn't like that. He was the kind of Christian uh, that after you were with him, you were more inclined to consider eternal things than you had been before and steve mcqueen had never met a christian like this and he noticed as he became friends with his instructor that this this man wasn't just calm as a pilot but in his decisions of his life he had this deep-seated confidence and he had this profound trust that god was working and god was leading and god was helping him and this changed everything that Steve McQueen thought he knew about church people. It changed everything he thought he knew about the manner in which a person could hold their faith, the manner in which a person could be a believer. And he decided, one, one Sunday morning he woke up and he told his wife uh, to get dressed and she said, where are we going? He said, we're going to church. And she nearly passed out seven times because you know this was Steve McQueen talking, the king of cool, and we're going to church. And yes, they got their clothes on, they went to a local church and they sat on the back row and hoped no one recognized him. And uh, he would come to faith. He would repent of his sins. Uh, He would, he would begin a life of, of, of seeking eternal things, at, at this late stage, after he's experienced the worst, after he's experienced the best, he would become a person of faith. Interestingly, when he died, later on, uh, he died of cancer, and when they found him passed on uh, his hospital bed, uh, he had a Bible open on his chest, open to John 3.16, which you know, God so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now why would I tell you the story of the king of cool meeting the king of kings? Here's why I would tell you that story. First of all, we all of us um, are tempted to think we know what would make us happy. Uh, We believe quite deeply that we know exactly what we need and we spend years and we spend decades pursuing The very things we think we know would complete us, would make us whole, would in some way finish us in a manner where we were complete and we were Spiritually whole, and we usually, looking at our histories, we normally think it's some combination of five things. Some combination of five things. Number one, fame. I'll explain that more because most of us don't think we care anything about fame. Uh, Wealth. uh, You understand that one pretty good because everybody would like to have a little extra at the end of the month. Uh, Beauty. Uh, That makes sense to most people genius. I'll explain that a little bit and finally power most of us think and it's not just us It's not just our generation, but it's all the generations that have left Records for us to learn from you tend to think I tend to think that we know What would make us happy and it would be some combination Some calculus of these five things, some version of fame, some version of wealth, some version of beauty, some version of genius, some version of power. So uh, let's talk about these things. And I I have a lot of details in your notes if you want to download the notes I'm preaching from. They're available on uh, the church website. Let me get into this. I, I want to look at these five things from the perspective of humanity. Thinking these are the things that complete these are the things that make them whole. The story of generation after generation thinking the good life is some version of these five things because what i 'm wanting to do is before this message is done i 'm wanting to awaken in you a desire to live a more spiritual life than the one you have settled for, a desire to walk a little closer to the presence of God, to listen a little more carefully to the word of God. And so let's talk about the human calculus of what we think would make us happy. First, let's talk about fame. Fame is more attractive to the human condition than it has ever been in human history, largely because of social media we have chosen in this generation to define ourselves to people we don't know and who don't know us by an image, a fakery, shall we say, of who we are. You don't post ugly pictures of yourself on your social media. You post the best pictures of yourself on social media. In fact, some of you guys get out those little apps where you can make yourself look skinnier than you actually are and prettier than you actually are and you put better color on your cheeks than is actually on your cheeks and when you get done with you you are a marketing version of yourself you ain't even you and the people in your lives look at that picture and they don't think oh my god he has lost weight they think oh my god he's been playing with that app again We create an image of ourselves that we project, and this is eminently human. This is very much true to our nature, but there's a, there's a problem that is here you can look. I'm not even, for I'm on some of these, Some of, I'll tell you what, on all of these things, I'm going to take a perspective, not simply of the things you would expect a preacher to say. You would expect a preacher to say, uh, Jesus is the answer. You would expect that. You would expect a preacher to say, uh, Jesus has what you need, and he can fix you. You would expect all that, and so then you would leave, and you would, you would go to eat, and you'd be like, oh, that's a pretty good message. You know, he said all the things I expected. I want to use some of our own research to show you how you don't know what would make you happy, but God does. Stay with me. So, this first issue of fame. Um, Most people, uh, researchers will tell you that study this kind of a thing, primarily social science, uh, sciences and psychology and the like, people who have a dysfunctional need to be famous uh, usually have a history of neglect in their past. And what happens is this sad mechanism of the human condition condition cycling uh, in a life. Uh, What do I mean by cycling? Well, this is what I mean. Uh, Hurting people tend to hurt people, do you see? And uh, broken people tend to break people. Uh, You you see what I'm saying? And uh, angry people tend to make people angry, do you see? There is this brokenness to the human story where if we are not careful, there is a a, a cyclicality to it all where the, the wheel of futility grinds on and on and somebody needs to stand up and say, stop. And so you see in uh, this reality of a kid who feels as though they are unloved or uh, they're neglected by parents who in some way did not return love and uh, fame allows them to fix their situation by more of the same futility. The cyclical nature of human brokenness continues. Here's why. You see, when you're famous... Millions love you, and you don't even know their names. It's purely one sided affection. They wait for hours in the cold for your autograph. They wait for hours in the heat to take a picture with you, and you barely glance at them as you make your way to your limo. You get to take all of their love and their affection and the projection of their hopes and dreams upon you, and you get give next to nothing back just as you feel like your parents did to you. And so the brokenness of the human condition continues. It turns out that fame does not make people happy. It turns out that fame ends with this paper-thin covering of adoration. And it does not complete. It does not make you whole. In fact, Famous people are four times as likely to commit suicide than the rest of us. But the human condition makes you think if you were the one noticed when you drove up, if you were the one celebrated when you got out of the limo, if you were the one who the fashion designers wanted to wear their designs, then you would be happy. Let me tell you the truth. You're not very good at knowing what would complete you. And I have evidence. The second item you will throw in your calculus that you think would make you happy is some version of wealth. It may be a lot of wealth. It may be enough where you get to tell off anyone you've ever wanted to tell off in your life. It may be enough where you never have to work again. Wealth in some form you will think is part of your calculus. So uh, talking about uh, happiness research and the like, uh, there's actually a tremendous um, uh, amount of this kind of research now as a new field actually a subfield of sociology and economics of this kind of research uh, goes out and uh, is worked through. You ever wonder what the happiest nation in the world is? I'm going to tell you. Luckily, I studied for this. You're going to love it. The happiest nation in the world is not America. Uh, I hope you weren't expecting it was. We're number 16, which isn't terrible, but let's be honest, it's not amazing. The happiest nation in the world is Nigeria. Nigeria scores highest for happiness than any other nation in the world. And here's what's fascinating. The annual average income in Nigeria is $300. How, in the name of God, could people make $300 a year and be happy? Here's the thing. Happiness doesn't really make, uh, excuse me, money doesn't really make people happy. It makes your life easier. It makes it funner to go on vacation. It helps, I won't act like it doesn't, But if you think that is going to fit in your calculus and make you in some way complete, you would be deceiving yourself. And here's the research. Your brain plays a trick on you. It's called averaging down. Whatever you have, you're not thankful for it. You think that's what you're supposed to have, and you look around for someone who has more, and you compare yourself to them. You average your happiness down. So, let's say you make a half a million a year, uh, and you're just rolling, uh, doing great. In this part of the country, a half a million a year is good, good, good money. Yay, Lord, and let it be. Can I have an amen? Uh, That's good money. But if there's one person in your neighborhood who makes a million dollars a year, you won't compare yourself with the rest of us, broke broke suckers. You'll look at that one person and you will tell your children that they're poor. They ain't poor you were poor when you were growing up. Actually, you weren't poor. Your parents were poor. Do you see? We average it down. And wealth, instead of completing you, it makes everything complicated. It changes the game to a set of rules you don't understand because nothing in your life has prepared you for it. Imagine you sell an overnight blockbuster novel and you get a check for uh, so many millions of dollars. It doesn't complete. It doesn't make it. It's fun. But if what you're looking for is wholeness of soul. It is not going to give it to you. There's a tremendous amount of research into people who have won the lottery. Let me tell you about one named William Post. His nickname was Bud. He won $16 million and uh, suddenly discovered that nothing in his life had prepared him for managing that kind of money. He didn't know who his friends were anymore. He had every family member, every cousin, every every second cousin third cousin all calling him he didn't know if they liked him for him or if they just wanted to get on the bling train because everybody wants to ride the bling train and he didn't know and he couldn't trust his own family he didn't know what to do his life was a mess finally the icing on the cape was his own brother hired a hitman to kill him so he could get the money and then while his brother was in prison bud proceeded to lose it all so he could be broke again Tragic. We're not very good at knowing what would complete us. Let's say that your version of happiness had some version of beauty in it. Maybe not the beauty of a magazine cover, but let's be honest, Uh, being physically attractive or having the aesthetic we think of as attractiveness is is real world helpful. Uh, You can look at the research. Attractive people make more money. That's why you should try to make yourself look good when you go to work. You might get a raise. You never know. Uh, (laughs) Attractive people make better grades. Quit showing up to college college class in your pajamas kids Attractive people make better grades. It's the real truth. It's not my opinion. It's in the research. They get better jobs. Yes, they have more successful, they, they marry more successful partners. This is the carnal, even cynical reality of our life. So you would think that being in some way suddenly attractive would be part of your happiness uh, calculus. And uh, you would think that would be somehow possible heart of it. But um, uh, actually, the research would say you're wrong. That is not a good indicator of your happiness. In fact, people who are uh, very attractive oftentimes feel as though most of their interactions with other people are manipulative. They have an inability to appreciate sincere compliments because they can't tell when they're getting a real one. Most of their experience with others has been th- knit through with this manipulation. And so they are unable to have some of the healthy uh, pleasure, shall we say, of normal friendships and Taking genuine compliments uh, in areas where there's authenticity, because they've been so manipulated in the one area of their attractiveness. Let's say, having addressed that, you can do something better than anyone else. Maybe that's part of your calculus for happiness. We call that genius. There's all kinds of genius. There's there's uh, intellectual genius. There's genius uh, of of, of uh, language and communication, like a poet or a songwriter, a novelist. Uh, there is genius of physical ability like an athlete or a dancer. There is um, a genius of, you get the idea, all kinds of different genius. Uh, and if you can do something better than anybody else, the market will reward you for it. It will re- reward you massively. And you think to yourself, if I could be better at something than anyone else, that would be part of my of." My my happiness calculus. That would be part of what made me uh, happy. But there's two problems with this. Uh, the first problem is um, <laughs> uh, genius takes a lot of practice. <laughs> No one can get there just on genius. And so while the rest of the world was having fun at spring break, you were perfecting what your potential was in. So you haven't lived an ordinary life. That's number one. Number two, this is happiness research. This is not my opinion. Number two, the very fact that you are so much better than everybody else in one area inclines you to see them with a sense of contempt because the only way for you to be the best in an arena of genius is for. For you to spend your whole life pursuing it. Therefore, your standards get skewed and you start valuing people on the arena in which you are rewarded. This is the research. And here's the reality. Number three, if you are a genius, you have a much higher chance than normal of also having mental illness. Boy, it's quiet in the church house here today. 50% of poets 38% of musicians, 20% of painters, I mean like an like a, uh, artistic painter, uh, have some form of uh, mental, he- mental health issues, most of them some form of bipolar uh, disorder, and you thought that would make you happy. Stay with me. Finally, part of the human calculus, we say, I would love to have power. Now, how do I define power? I don't define it like Stalin or, or Hitler. Those are statistical outliers. I, I define it like this. In your world, things are arranged a certain way. If you have power, you can move them around, or you can't move them around. If you have power, you can say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to change this. If you have no power, you say, I don't like this, I don't like that, and people tell you to hush. You will think some version of power is part of your happiness formula. You will think that uh, fame is some part of your happiness formula. You'll think that beauty and genius and money it's all some part of it. But you can take every one of these categories. Find the people who seem to have it all and you will find out there is a hole in the center of their being. There is a lacking they can't always describe it they can't always define it it doesn't even matter if you are the king of cool or the queen of cool it doesn't matter you are so constructed where this world will never be enough And I want to challenge everyone here today. I want to challenge everyone watching uh, by way of media. I want to challenge us all to live a life that is more spiritual than what we have been settling for. Because even if you have money, you need something else to finish you. And even if you have beauty, you need something else to make you whole. And even if you have fame, it's not enough. But let me tell you, if you will turn your eyes toward Jesus, let me be a preacher because that's what you came to see, right? I'm going to preach to you. If you will turn your eyes back to Jesus, it's not just a man who showed us the best possible way of being and living. It is God rolled in flesh. Why do I say it that way? It's not enough to see. Let me just talk about Jesus for a moment. Jesus is the brightest star in the philosophical sky. There is no one like Jesus. Now, you can follow after this teacher or that teacher, but the brightest star in the moral sky is Jesus. The brightest star in the philosophical star sky is Jesus. The brightest star in a sky of human meaning is Jesus. You say, I don't know about that. Let me tell you how bright his star shined upon us. He is the one who was whole. He was the one who was rich. He was the one who was mighty. And he laid it all down just to tell you, I love you. You wanna you wanna celebrate the most beautiful love story ever told that's gonna go something like this. Somebody had everything and they loved you so much they gave it up so they had have you instead of everything. The most beautiful love song ever been written is going to be some version of somebody having it and then falling in love and saying, I will trade it all for you because you complete me. Calvary is God saying, I love you guys this much. I will trade it all for you. All right? He is the most beautiful meaning in a sky field with meaning. And he represents what it means to come to a broken world and give your life to make it whole. That is the path that he invites all of us to. Do you see? Now, let's talk about not the flesh. But let's talk about the creator because he desired to know you, not simply as a hierarchy of duty, but in a relationship of love. And he risked the heavenly order to have somebody who would love him without needing to be forced to do it. God risked everything, the heavenly order to create some being that could choose to love him. That's what the book of Job is about. If you take everything from Job, will he still love you? God says, I think he will. I think it was a bet worth taking. It was a risk worth taking. He's not an automaton. I'm not forcing him. Even when bad things happen, he gets to choose. And in all these things, Job did not curse God. He did not charge God. But he, in the suffering, chose God. And all of heaven said, see, that's what I'm talking about. That's the divine love story right there. In a nutshell, so to speak, the creator risked order because he set it aside and said, you know me through love, not through order, not through power. Thus, sin is hell's attempt Lucifer in the garden I mean the serpent in the garden you get the idea hell's attempt to destroy what God was always seeking which is relationship not forced by hierarchy not demanded by power not built upon authority but a love story from beginning to end from alpha to omega a love story I am yours and you are mine I choose you some days I might have money some days I might be broke I choose you Some days I might be healthy, I might be sick. I choose you. I may have everything I think I want. I may have nothing I think I want. I choose you. Musicians, you can come. I'm trying to end here, but I've got so much to say and so little time to say it all in. Here's the thing. This creator, this God that we all serve, Yahweh, Jehovah, the beginning and the end, the I am that I am. Language fails. Do you get the idea? Language fails. And uh, this this first mover, this eternal one, um, he had all five. (laughs) Do, Do you understand everything we think we want? You see, our problem is not just lust after the world. It's not just lust after each other uh, in the form of attraction or the like. It's also lust for the things of God. That's how Eve was attracted. Uh, The Lord doesn't want you to have this fruit because then you'll be like God. That's the problem with Lucifer. I want to be, I will ascend to heaven. We have this problem with the big five and we think that's what it's all about. And that is not what it is all about because God had it all. He had all power. He had all fame. (laughs) How are you going to get bigger than that? He had all beauty in all points glorious, all genius, genius on a level that cannot be comprehended. In fact, it defies the word itself. Finally, everything of value God has random asteroids in the Oort Belt that are worth more than every bit of wealth that's been produced by the human race. Do you see what I'm saying? And that's just like one star system. So uh, you get the idea here. He had it all and gave it up for you. You see. I want to invite you to live a more spiritual life. I want to invite you to stop believing the stuff will make you happy. And it's not just a preacher saying preacher like things. It is true, even, it is emergent and true even in the research, even in the psychology. It is true when they study and they try to understand what helps people. It's none of the things that people think it is. And there's three things that always emerge from the research. And it is not what you would think it is. All the research tends to say three things that actually will make people happy if they will do it are friendship, altruism, and faith. Religious practice. Okay, now I probably didn't blow your mind, but... um, let me say it this way. Could it be that God knows you better than you know you? And you think all this junk will make me happy and God says, no, 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 no. Love one another. We say, I need this and I need that and I need this and I need that. No, 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 no. If they ask you to carry it a mile, carry it too. It's better to give than it is to receive. Receiving doesn't make you happy giving does. It's the craziest thing. I don't even have to quote scripture. The scripture was right 2,000 years before the research caught up with it. If you don't want to believe me, believe the research. Three things. Connection with other people. Doing good. Altruism. Helping others connecting with God, religious or faith type practice. Now I want to give you a scripture and I want to let this be uh, something that we, we don't just quote one to another, but we perceive and we integrate into our life. Titus chapter three, verse number five. I love this passage. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. God knows what you need. I want to encourage you, wherever you are at in your your life, whatever uh, decade of years you're living, whether you're a student or a retiree or somewhere in the middle, I want to encourage you to give yourself permission to be more spiritual. I want you to give yourself more, per, more, more, more permission to pray about things. I want you to give yourself more permission to take some time, set aside quiet time, and say, both the preacher, my praying grandma, and the psychologist thinks I need more quiet time in my life. <laughs> Do you see what I'm doing here? Do you see what I'm doing here? It's not just the preacher telling you you ought to be more spiritual. It's everything we know about the human experience that's inviting you to be more spiritual. Even if you are the king, of king, the king of cool, you still need the king of kings. Even if you are the prettiest girl at the dance, which I hope you are. <laughs> After all, you went to a dance. You might as well be pretty, right? <laughs> Even if you are the queen of cool, you need the king of kings. Even if you have money in your pocket, your wallet is so heavy, it hurts your back when you walk around town. You need God. In fact, to get the order right, to pursue wholeness, do you see, wholeness, it goes like this, seek God first and let God add the things of this world to you. Don't seek the world and then try to add God. Do you see how that's exact? That is a path to misery. And I have met some miserable believers. That's the path to misery. First, seek. God, or let me say it a little differently, first seek that relationship with God, first seek a a, a path of faith, first make room for the spiritual, and out of that becoming, you see, happiness is not the result of possessions, it's the result of rituals in your life, things you do, that's again, research, it's not what you have, it's what you do, that breed, even if you're the king of cool, you need the king of kings. And so this Holy Scripture threaded from beginning to end is invited you, inviting you to do, to be. It's inviting you to believe. It's inviting you to seek. It's inviting you to pray. It's not a book about possessions. It's a book about a pursuit of the one who made you that an eternal love story might be fulfilled in your faith. Would you stand with me all over the house? I I, I so much want to encourage you to make that first step. Whatever your next step is. It might be the first. It may be the next step. I so much want to encourage you to make that step toward God. Let's pray together all across the house. Lord Jesus, I'm praying for every individual who is here today. I'm praying for every person who has joined us uh, online today. I'm praying that we would see through the deception, the self-deception of the flesh. And that we would hear the invitation of God to live a more spiritual life. I'm praying, Lord, that we would be intentional in our effort to turn towards you. We would be intentional in making quiet time in our life to consider your word, to meditate upon your truth, to build our lives upon prayer. Oh, Lord. I pray you would awaken within us a passion, oh God. Awaken within us a longing where this world will never be enough. It will never be the source of contentment for us. We rather would build our life upon heavenly foundations than pursue the pleasures of the world that is just temporal and seasonal in our life. Anoint us for your work. Wash us from our sin. Fill us with your anointing. In Jesus' name we pray. Our worship team is going to lead us in worship. Would you take some time right now and stand in His presence and turn your hearts heavenward. Oh, God. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them.